1: I'm Michael Keegan, your host and Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. There's a growing momentum for evidence-based approaches at all levels of government. The Office of Management and Budget, OMB, has called upon federal agencies to focus on a broad-based set of activities to better integrate evidence and rigorous evaluation in budget, management, operations, and policy decisions, including making better use of already collected data, promoting the use of high-quality, low-cost evaluations, adopting more evidence-based structures for grant-making programs, building agency evaluation capacity, and developing tools to better communicate what works. This embrace of evidence-based approaches has resulted in important gains in areas ranging from reducing veterans' homelessness to improving educational outcomes and beyond. The National Center for Education Evaluation and Regional Assistance, NCEE, within the U.S. Department of Education, helps policymakers and educators make informed decisions about educational programs and interventions, providing evidence-based information derived from rigorous, relevant research, evaluation, and statistics. What is the What Works Clearinghouse? How does the NCEE ensure the widespread dissemination of its research findings? We will explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Joy Lesnick, Acting Commissioner of the National Center for Education Evaluation and Regional Assistance within the Institute of Education Sciences at the U.S. Department of Education. Joy, welcome to the show. It's great to have you.
2: Great to be here. Thanks, Michael.
1: Also joining our conversation from IBM is Kirsten Schroeder. Kirsten, welcome. Thank you. So, Joy, uh, let's start out by giving a brief overview of the mission of both the National Center for Education Evaluation and Regional Assistance and the Institute of Education Science, both within the U.S. Department of Education, when were they created, and how have their respective missions evolved to date?
2: Sure. So, NCEE, National Center for Education Evaluation and Regional Assistance, is one of four centers in the Institute of Education Sciences, or IES. It's, that's the statistics, research, and evaluation arm of the U.S. Department of Education. IES was established in 2002 through the Education Sciences Reform Act, or ESRA, and it's independent and nonpartisan by design. And our mission is to provide scientific evidence on which to ground education practice and policy and then share this information in formats that are useful and accessible to educators, parents, policymakers, researchers, and the general public. IES conducts six broad types of work that address school readiness and education from infancy through adulthood. Uh, we also look at special populations such as English learners and students with disabilities. So, those six broad types of work first, we provide data that describe how well the United States is educating its students. And IES does that by collecting and analyzing official statistics on the condition of education, including adult education and literacy by supporting international assessments, and by carrying out the National Assessment of Education Progress, or NAEP. So the second broad type of work uh, is that we conduct surveys and sponsor research projects to understand where education needs improvement and how these improvements might be made. So we have longitudinal surveys, which provide nationally representative data on how students are progressing through school and into the workforce. We have cross-sectional surveys, and they provide a snapshot of how students and the education system are doing at specific points in time. And we fund research that uses these and other data to gain a deeper understanding of the nature and context of needed education improvements. So third... We fund development and rigorous testing of new approaches for improving education outcomes for all students. And we do that by supporting the development of practical solutions for education from the earliest design stages through pilot studies and rigorous testing at scale. And with IES support, researchers are learning what works for improving instruction, student behavior, teacher learning, and school and system organization. The fourth broad type of work is that we conduct large-scale evaluations of federal education programs and policies, and these evaluations address complex issues of national importance, such as the impact of alternative, alternative pathways for preparing teachers, teacher and leader evaluation systems, school improvement initiatives, and school choice programs. Fifth, we provide resources to increase the use of data and research in education decision making. Through the What Works Clearinghouse, we conduct independent reviews of research on what works in education. The Regional Educational Laboratories, or RELs, offer opportunities to learn what works as well as provide coaching, training, and other support for research use across the country and outlying territories. And our statewide longitudinal data system grants enable states to more efficiently track education outcomes and provide useful, timely information to decision makers. And finally, IES supports the advancement of statistics and research through specialized training and developing new methods and measures. IES funds pre-doctoral and postdoctoral training programs, as well as database training and short courses on cutting-edge topics for working statisticians and researchers. And the Institute's empirical work on new methods and measures ensures continued advances in the accuracy, usefulness, and cost-effectiveness of education data collections and research. So that's the big view of IES, and I can talk more about NCEE, my center, in more detail. And
1: I'd like to actually touch on that and the operational footprint of the center. Uh, Would you tell us how it's organized, the size of your budget, the number of folks who work with you? And maybe give us a sense of the geographical footprint.
2: Sure. So, NCE is one of four centers in the Institute that do the six broad types of work I just described. There's the National Center for Education Research, NCER, which primarily awards grants to researchers to support rigorous research that addresses the nation's most pressing education needs from early childhood to adult education. There's the National Center for Special Education Research, NCSER, which sponsors a comprehensive program of special education research designed to expand the knowledge and understanding of infants, toddlers, and children with disabilities. There's the National Center of Education Statistics, NCES, which is the primary federal entity for collecting and analyzing data related to education. And then there's NCEE, the National Center for Education, Evaluation, and Regional Assistance, which conducts large-scale evaluations, provides research-based technical assistance, and information about that high-quality research to educators and policymakers in a variety of different formats. So there are about 190 staff in IES and about 20 staff in NCE. These 20 folks do not do all of the research. All of the research in NCEE is done through contracts.
0: Great. Thank you. Now we'd like to explore your leadership role. What are your specific responsibilities as acting commissioner and what areas are under your purview?
2: Well, each center has a commissioner who's responsible for all the staff and activities in that center. NCEE is organized into two divisions. We have an evaluation division and a knowledge utilization division. So in the evaluation division, we're doing those large-scale evaluations of education programs, again, through contracts and practices supported by federal funds. So we have an impact of alternative teacher preparation models evaluation, professional development model evaluations, teacher and leader evaluation systems, school choice, those kinds of programs. In knowledge utilization, we provide resources to increase the use of data and research in decision making. So in the knowledge utilization division, we have the What Works Clearinghouse, where we provide independent reviews and syntheses of research on what works in education, The Regional Educational Laboratories Network, or the REL Network, which is a key tool for disseminating high-quality information across the U.S. and outlying territories. And it's a key tool for working in partnership with practitioners on how to use data and research and education on a variety of topics of importance. And then we also provide digital and in-person libraries of collections of information. We have ERIC and the National Library of Education in the Knowledge Utilization Division. I'm the Associate Commissioner for the Knowledge Utilization Division and then the Acting Commissioner for the entire center.
1: So, regarding your role and responsibility, what are your top, say, three challenges you face and how have you sought to address those challenges? Sure.
2: Well, I'd say the first challenge is communication in all sorts of forms, Uh, communicating regularly with folks both inside and outside of the department, communicating with practitioners and policymakers about research findings, and then going beyond communication to engagement as more of a two-way street between researchers and practitioners. I think communication's best when it's clear and gets to the point, but that is hard to do. It's hard to say less when you have lots to say. Not to mention that researchers and practitioners and policymakers all sometimes speak different languages. It's also hard to communicate in creative, accessible, and brief ways when you're producing lots of reports, and so the scale is really a challenge for us. For example, last year we released more than one report per week from NCE on average, and that is a very fast pace. And creativity never follows a template, so we're constantly challenging ourselves and our contractors to try out new ways to engage our audiences. And so some ways we've tried to address this communication challenge is through a real focus on plain language, uh, which doesn't mean less precision, but it means paying close attention to the audience and who will read your information or use your resources and how easy it will be for them to follow along. I really do spend more time reviewing and commenting on the brief news flashes that we send out via email listservs, for example, than on providing feedback on the wording of longer reports. I also pay close attention to summary sections, key findings, the website text, and any time we're trying to explain information to our audiences, I'm often commenting in the margins that I don't quite understand what this means, and if I have to try this hard to understand it, our readers really are trying too hard to. And that's a really a different mindset for researchers to write from this 30,000-foot view to an audience that might not know anything about the topic that they themselves know a lot about. So it's a real challenge. We've also tried out using more infographics to summarize the results of research and to explain how our projects work. Uh, Infographics are also hard to do (laughs) because they work best when the information is creative and non-formulaic, but when they're done well, the information's really powerful. So one example of that is in Florida, where one of our regional educational laboratories had done a research report that was really relevant to the State Department of Education and had been done in partnership. The report was really well done, but it wasn't until people saw a one-page infographic about the findings that it really gained a lot of interest and attention and started to generate conversation about those research findings and the implications. So a second challenge is being flexible and adapting to meet stakeholder needs. So that's especially challenging in a government environment where contracts have annual plans that are negotiated at the beginning of each year, and then it takes contract modifications to change directions. I heard someone describe changing directions in government by using the metaphor of turning an aircraft carrier rather than a speedboat, Uh, and I've certainly felt that challenge from time to time. So we've tried to address this by hearing from the field directly about what their needs are and by trying to be responsive and identify new possibilities within the limitations we have. Twitter actually has been really helpful for us in doing this, especially for hearing directly from people about their wishes or frustrations. So for example, people have tweeted how they aren't able to easily find the studies that we've reviewed in the WhatWorks Clearinghouse database. So we've adapted an existing communications task to produce a quick video about how to use the database search functions, and we'll be incorporating the feedback into a redesigned search tool we're working on now. So we try to do some short-term fixes and then incorporate the feedback into our long-term vision and plans. And finally, a real challenge is having enough staff to lead and coordinate the work of the contractors. So by design, our contractors do the lion's share of the substantive work, but the coordination of a government project can only really happen at the federal level. And our team is excellent and dedicated, but small, and the federal staff core is shrinking. So one way we've approached this challenge is to take a matrix approach to contract management for the What Works Clearinghouse Investment There are four people working across the five different contracts, not 100% of their time, but some portion of it. And instead of having one person per contract, each of the four people on the IES Clearinghouse team is responsible for a different aspect of the work across all five of the contracts. So as a result, we're more coordinated across the different aspects of the Clearinghouse investment. It's a really complicated and complex project, And taking a matrix and team approach to the work has allowed us to put many heads together to solve the challenging problems and then also to be proactive in planning for future products and procurements. It has also generated lots of ideas for ways we can move the work forward. I'd say we have more ideas than we have staff to oversee them at the moment. So that's a challenge, too, but it's a good problem to have.
1: Well, what has surprised you since taking on your current role?
2: So when I meet with contractors or people in the field who work on or know about our big investments, like the WellWorks Clearinghouse or the RELs, I'm always a little bit surprised when they reveal their surprise that I'm thoughtful, aware of scholarly debates, and always trying to improve the product and services that government offers. That may sound a little silly, but it happens more often than I'd expect I think it's because in my role, I'm constantly trying to strike a balance between the responsibility of government service and what a government research center should do and say, while also being responsive when the guidelines and requirements that we at the center set out at the beginning of our projects need to change to work better for our contractors and stakeholders. So it's impossible to predict where we'll be five years down the road when we write a performance work statement for a contract, so we need to figure out how to adapt and respond in thoughtful ways along the way.
0: So it sounds like your team and yourself have really had to bring a lot of skills to bear. So let me ask a little different question. Can you tell us more about your career path? What has brought you to your current leadership role?
2: Sure. Well, I've had a bit of a spiral career path, I think they call it. And by that, I mean looking at the work of improving education and outcomes for students from a few different perspectives. I started out as a fourth grade teacher. I was a child of teachers, so being a teacher was a natural place for me to start my career. Uh, then I studied education policy in graduate school in Philadelphia because I had special education students in my inclusion class that I thought weren't being their needs weren't being met by policymakers. So I thought I might be a policymaker and practitioner who could bridge those gaps together like a like a young, optimistic 20-year-old might. then I did research and evaluations myself as part of a research team at a university in Chicago. And after that, I came to work in government, overseeing research contracts, particularly the What Works Clearinghouse contract to start. And now I actually supervise a team of people who oversee research contracts. It gets more governmental along the way. The roles have really been related, I'd say, and I've drawn on experiences from each perspective in a cumulative sense along the way on this spiral path. I also had the opportunity to participate in the Excellence in Government program at the Partnership for Public Service. There uh, was a cohort of 25 other federal staff, all from the Department of Education. That was a few years ago. And that brought another perspective on the leadership portion of my job, and it's been really useful and really helpful. And so I moved up from my position as a project officer for the clearinghouse um, in my office to the associate commissioner role for knowledge utilization, and then I was asked to step into the acting commissioner role when that position was vacated when Ruth Neild was delegated duties of the director for IES.
1: Mm -hmm. So let's stay on that leadership. Um, That was your leadership path or your path to leadership. What about your um, philosophy of leadership? I'd like to get a sense of what are the characteristics to you of an effective leader? And perhaps you could outline key leadership principles and illustrate how you've applied those principles.
2: Sure. First, uh, for me, leadership is really all about the people. And by that, I mean empathy and respect for people and for their perspectives, their passions, their frustration, and their investment in the work they're doing as part of the team. I think that good leaders really recognize the emotional side of how people are connected to their work and support them and the decisions that they're empowered to make. I think that effective leaders are really authentic. Maybe the best compliment I received when I first became associate commissioner two years ago, a colleague said that what she appreciated the most about me in that new role was that I continued to be myself rather than change to be something I thought the role required. I think about that often when I'm feeling a bit out of my league or if my style is unlike my peers. I I think leadership is really behavior, not position, and we can all lead from where we are and as who we are. I think a second um, principle to move forward and improve: everyone needs to know what to do and what their role is in reaching the shared goal So for me, as a leader, it's important to be clear and direct and to address problems head-on, and then to celebrate our successes, too. I think an effective leader supports and sometimes nudges staff to be leaders themselves from wherever they are. And third, I'd say an effective leader is constantly looking for ways to learn, to grow, and to improve. I think there's always room for creativity and growth, and we're often all really learning together, especially when we're inventing something new. Sometimes we make mistakes, and we learn from them, and we grow. You asked for three, but I'll add one more point that's a favorite quote of mine that I think of often in different situations. The quote goes something like, we don't see things the way they are. We see things the way we are. And recognizing where people are is essential, I think, when working together as a team toward a shared goal.
1: What is the mission of the What Works Clearinghouse? We will ask Joy Lesnick, Acting Commissioner of the National Center for Education Evaluation and Regional Assistance within the U.S. Department of Education, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How can DOD improve its acquisition processes? Check out the latest IBM Center report, Eight Actions to Improve Defense Acquisition. The authors emphasize the urgency of acquisition reform in DOD, given budgetary constraints and security challenges, finding that DOD will need to gain every possible efficiency while resisting the temptation to buy defense on the cheap. This report continues the IBM Center's interest in better understanding and improving the federal government acquisition process. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Joy Lesnick, Acting Commissioner of the National Center for Education Evaluation and Regional Assistance within the U.S. Department of Education. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Kirsten Schroeder. So, Joy, I'd like to explore in more depth, um, what are the factors that have contributed to the growing body of evidence for the effectiveness of government programs, in your case, education programs?
2: Sure. Well, one of the key 2014 to 2015 priorities of the department, as described in the Secretary's 2014 to 18 strategic plan, is to enable evidence based decision making. And one of the ways the plan lays out how to get there is to invest in research and evaluation that builds evidence for education improvement, communicates findings effectively, and drive the use of evidence in decision making by internal and external stakeholders. So researchers, just by the nature of what we do, are usually trying to build on the existing body of evidence that exists to produce new evidence to support, dispute, or extend that cumulative body of knowledge. It's not that different from what humans do when trying to figure out how things work or the best way to do things. For example, if you move to a new city over the first few months, you probably try out a few different routes to drive, walk, or train to work to get to work you're probably trying to figure out which one is fastest or has the fewest stops or is the cheapest or is the one that passes the coffee shop you like to go to on the way so you can easily pop in. That's all a form of research. It's probably not systematic unless you time yourself each day and keep a log of the weather and construction and delays. And you can't ever determine which way is best on a given day unless someone else leaves your house the same time as you do and takes the opposite route at the same speed you would and then you can compare how long it took. And actually, you can't determine which way is the best overall or on average without repeating that during different seasons, different times of day, with different forms of transportation, et cetera. I think you get my point. When we use evidence like that to make decisions, we are also incorporating judgments about what's important to us. In this case, convenience, time, efficiency, cost, coffee, etc. Over the past few decades... There has been a growing consensus that what matters when making decisions in education is whether a program, policy, practice, or approach improves student outcomes, and particularly the outcomes that we can measure, like performance on tests, graduating from high school, student behavior, things like that. And this growing consensus has translated into a growing body of evidence about the effectiveness of programs across the education research field. IES has been a leader in funding evaluations of programs towards its end since it was established in 2002, including investing in training programs to support researchers in learning how to do this kind of work, like predoctoral fellowships, postdoctoral fellowships, training on statistical methods, and training for how to use federal longitudinal databases, just to name a few.
1: So you mentioned earlier in your response that uh, when you're talking about evaluation or evidence or policymaking, that policymakers tend to... To use, speak different languages than practitioners and researchers. And as I was getting ready for this interview, you know, there's a lot of terminology in this area. And I'd like to talk specifically about certain words that are used all the time and, and sort of delve into their definition. Would you define for us what is meant by evidence and what is meant by program effectiveness? And what do you mean by rigorous evidence and how important it is to your work?
2: Sure, that's a great question because evidence can be a lot of things. Certainly, we're not talking about evidence from a crime scene, like in a courtroom setting here. Certainly not. In education, evidence is somewhat of an umbrella term for what we learn from doing all kinds of research. And it's also a bit of a shorthand because what we mean at IES and NCE when talking about evidence is evidence about the effectiveness of interventions. And I use that term, interventions, to mean programs, policies, practices, and approaches. So evidence can mean positive findings, negative findings, or finding that the intervention you studied had similar outcomes in the treatment group where you used the intervention as compared to outcomes for students in the comparison or the control group. So when there's evidence about the effectiveness of an intervention, a decision-maker in education has another piece of information to use to make their decision. So it's not always that positive findings mean that the decision-maker will adopt or should adopt that intervention. The evidence could be a small positive finding that costs a lot of money to achieve, and the decision maker has to weigh whether or not that intervention is worth the cost. The evidence of effectiveness could also be a finding of what we call no difference, which is when the study found that the new intervention doesn't improve the outcomes you were looking at compared to what you were already doing. But if there are other aspects of that intervention that are desirable to you as a decision maker, maybe it's cheaper, maybe people like it more, Maybe it includes more updated information, then you, as the decision maker, may still decide to adopt that intervention in a school. But the bottom line is that you need that evidence of effectiveness to be able to consider it in your decision, and you need it to be rigorous. In effectiveness studies, that means that the research study was designed to determine whether the intervention caused the change in the outcomes. It's tricky because we're talking about humans here. If you have a seed and don't put it in soil and don't water it and don't give it sun, it won't grow no matter how long you wait. But in most cases, a fourth grader will know more math at the end of the school year than at the beginning of the school year just because nine months have gone by. So to see if a new math curriculum is related to students learning more, then you need two groups of students, one group that receives the curriculum and the other one that doesn't or receives a different curriculum. And those groups have to be similar to each other so we can have confidence that the math curriculum itself was the reason for the change in their math achievement and not because of something else. Maybe that one group was already performing higher to begin with, That one group had an especially good teacher, that one group had a disruption in their school year because of a flood, or, or whatever the case may be. Those groups have to be similar, like the example I gave earlier of someone leaving your house at the same time that you do to try out which way is the fastest way to get to work that day. So the best way to get similar groups in your treatment and comparison groups is to start with the whole pool together and then randomly assign students or classrooms or schools or whatever group you're looking at to either the treatment group or the comparison group to either get the intervention or to not get the intervention. This is the classic randomized control trial, or RCT. You can have similar groups in other ways, too, but the RCT is the best way to do it because it accounts for similarities in groups that you can measure, like test scores and age and gender. And things that you can't measure, like motivation and interest and persistence and things like that. So when you have a study that's designed with two equivalent groups, then you're on your way to being able to make conclusions based on what we call causal inferences. You can have a higher degree of confidence that the findings from the study are because of that intervention and not because of something else. And so the What Works Clearinghouse uses a rating of effectiveness studies to help people know how much confidence to have in those findings. And that highest rating is meets What Works Clearinghouse standards without reservations. And that means we have very high confidence in the findings and that the intervention was responsible for those findings. Again, whatever the findings are, they could be positive, negative, or no difference, but the rating is telling you about the confidence we have in whatever those findings are. And then the second highest rating for the What Works Clearinghouse is meets What Works Clearinghouse standards with reservations. This means that the study was designed in a way where we have some confidence in the findings, but not as much as if it were an RCT, which is what you need to get the highest rating.
1: So I'd like to talk about the basics of the What Works Clearinghouse, and then I'll pass it off to Kirsten and you to talk more about the specifics. But can you tell us when was it created, why was it created, and what topics does it focus on?
2: Well, the WhatWorks Clearinghouse, or I call it the Clearinghouse for short, uh, it's a central location for high-quality evidence of the effectiveness of interventions in education, from preschool to post-secondary, and we even look at interventions that aim to improve teacher outcomes. The Clearinghouse determines the quality of effectiveness studies in education. And one way to describe that what we do is to say we study the existing studies. And what I mean by that is that we look at studies of the effectiveness of interventions, effectiveness studies only, determine how each study was conducted. That's how it was designed, how many different students were in the different groups, how the outcomes were measured, and how the analyses were conducted. And then based on that analysis, make a determination about how much confidence to have in the findings from those studies. We apply a set of standards about high-quality effectiveness research and judge all studies against the same criteria, which is all publicly available on the WhatWorks Clearinghouse website, which is whatworks.ed.gov. If you know the standards and criteria when you review a study, you should come to the same conclusions we do. You may disagree with the standards, though I'd say there is a general consensus across fields about the basics of what's needed to make causal inferences about the effectiveness of interventions, but the standards are all applied to studies in the same way. The What Works Clearinghouse was established in 2002. We had our first reports in 2005, and it was modeled after similar efforts in other fields to conduct systematic reviews, namely the Cochrane Collaboration in Medicine and the Campbell Collaboration in Crime and Justice, Education, International Development, and Social Welfare. And the reason to have this centralized location is because there are lots of studies out there in education and other fields, and lots and lots of findings, and there really does need to be one place where you can find them all alongside a judgment about which are of the highest quality. And so the Clearinghouse aims to make the job of a decision maker a little bit easier. If they can get a summary of the highest quality evidence that we have about an intervention or approach, then they can use that in their decision It's really better than relying on one study, and it's certainly much more efficient than every decision-maker doing a review of all of the studies every time a decision needs to be made, which is, of course, impossible. And so when I'm talking about decision-makers in education, the people I'm referring to includes a number of different audiences. For example, it could be a state-level policymaker looking at teacher incentives. It could be teachers deciding how to teach problem-solving to middle school students, it could be superintendents selecting a district-wide reading curriculum. It could be a researcher or a developer looking to build on the existing evidence base. It could even be Congress. Anyone who is looking to make a decision in education is a potential user of the What Works Clearinghouse.
0: This is quite fascinating, and particularly from the area in the areas of knowledge management. And as you just described, the idea of developing this clearinghouse to address these various stakeholders from Principals, superintendents, um, down to the teacher um, classroom. So, in your description, wanted to kind of dive a little bit further into what were the founding or the foundational principles that underlay the the clearinghouse, and you know how does it synthesize evaluation findings in ways that make research useful to decision makers, researchers, and practitioners in the field.
2: Well, to be seen as a trusted source of information, which is really our goal, the foundational principle of the Clearinghouse is credibility, and I think we achieve that with our rigorous standards, the transparency of our reviews, and an adjudication process that allows anyone to disagree with the results of a review, which will always prompt the Clearinghouse to look at it again to make sure the review was done correctly and completely. All of the Clearinghouse's products and resources are designed to make the evidence accessible and easy to use. And to describe what I mean by that, I'll talk through four obstacles and then how the Clearinghouse has tried to address them. So first, there's the challenge of availability. Research articles are not hard to find if you have an Internet connection and a trusty search engine. But most of the time, the article you find is behind a paywall. And you have to pay for the article if you don't have access to a university library, which many district and state-level education decision makers do not. Next, there's a problem of scale. That same Google search may bring up 10 reports on a particular intervention, and probably 10 times that. It's really pretty daunting how many studies you might return from that search. Third, there's the issue of quality. So given all of the available studies, Which ones should I look at first and which ones are going to provide the best evidence? And, oh, by the way, since when did I need a Ph.D. in statistics to do my job well? It's pretty frustrating. And finally, of course, is the challenge of time. Who has time to track down all the research and read and evaluate it all in the first place? A decision maker has lots of other things to do that might be bus schedules, do upcoming legislation, it could be grading papers, and so on. So the Clearinghouse tries to address all of these obstacles by searching for all of the studies on an intervention, retrieving the actual reports or articles, and reading all of them. Really, every word, every table, every footnote. The Clearinghouse reviewers read it all and review it all, and that solves the availability and scale problems. Then the Clearinghouse assesses the quality of the evidence from each study to determine effectiveness. And as I mentioned earlier, the amount of confidence we can have in the findings of an effectiveness study depends entirely on how the study was designed and executed. And finally, the Clearinghouse summarizes the findings from the studies that meet the bar in one of our reports.
0: Super. So the Clearinghouse is this wealth of information you've just described, another function, assessing the quality, and then providing a summary Now, let me ask, who exactly performs the work that ends up in the Clearinghouse?
2: So I'll answer this in two ways. First, the Clearinghouse is an IES investment of about $10 million per year. The work is done through five contracts and coordinated by a small team of staff at IES. So the contractors have distinct tasks, such as maintaining the website, reviewing studies, developing reports in kindergarten through 12th grade or post-secondary education. They may be producing a practice guide or doing a quick turnaround review of studies, but the four non-website contracts all have tasks for reviewing studies, so it's really important that the IES staff are coordinating that work. The studies that those contractors are reviewing were done by education researchers in a variety of settings. It could be universities, nonprofit organizations, for profit developers, school districts, research firms, federal agencies, or elsewhere. A research study only needs to be public for the Whatworks Works Clearinghouse to review it. It does not have to be peer-reviewed or published. So the What Works Clearinghouse reviews include that gray literature in this way as well. So this is things like dissertations and master's theses, and they're all included in the systematic reviews. ERIC, which is the Education Resources Information Clearinghouse, is at eric.ed.gov. That's a great place for authors to submit their work for public availability. ERIC is an online library of education research and information. It's actually been around since 1964. Um, That's also in our center and a great place to make that information public without it being published.
1: How does the NCEE ensure the widespread dissemination of its research findings? We will ask Joy Lesnick, its acting commissioner, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. Government leaders and managers face major challenges today, including fiscal austerity, citizen expectation, the pace of technology and innovation, and a new role for governance. These challenges influence how government executives lead today, but more importantly, how they can be prepared for tomorrow. The IBM Center reports six trends driving change in government offers a path forward for government executives responding to the ever-increasing complexity and challenges they face today. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Joy Lesnick, Acting Commissioner of the National Center for Education Evaluation and Regional Assistance within the U.S. Department of Education. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Kirsten Schroeder. So, uh, Joy, I'd like to explore in more detail each of the core of the four products that you guys produce. And could you give us an understanding of the quick reviews that you issue, and what insights do they outline, and who's the target audience of the quick reviews?
2: Sure. So, the review of an individual study, it's really a building block for the four main products you mentioned. We've actually reviewed almost 11,000 of them. Uh, quick reviews are the Clearinghouse's initial and immediate assessment of a single publication that is receiving significant media attention. And it basically answers the question, should we believe these findings? A little bit of a consumer protection role. Uh, the review goes out in an email blast in about three paragraphs. It says what the study's about, what the authors found, and how does that study stack up against the What Works Clearinghouse's standards. We get this out within eight to ten days and then follow up with a more complete review in the form of a single study review, which is describes the findings more completely. Now, this is not all of our studies. We've not done 11,000 of these. These are just four studies that are receiving significant media mention. So you
0: mentioned the single study review. Can you go a little more into depth as to what the purpose of the single study review is? Can you tell us a little bit more about the contents of such review? How many of these reviews do you release annually?
2: Yeah, single-study reviews, they assess the quality of one individual study that's of interest to the education community. It's not all of the research on that topic, but, again, just one study. And the review results in a listing in our online database about the study rating. And sometimes it also ends up in a report that's about six to eight pages long of main text and contains the key study details. I'd say we do about 150 to 200 reviews of individual studies per year in this way and release about 50 reports. You can search our online database for all the studies that have been reviewed by the What Works Clearinghouse and the rating.
1: What are the intervention reviews that you do?
2: So intervention reports are a summary of all the possible single-study reviews on an intervention, basically, uh, which I've said we define as a program, policy, or practice. Intervention reports are the result of a systematic review of all the studies that have been conducted, whether it's five or 500, on a specific intervention, and then summarizes the findings from the studies that meet Clearinghouse standards. So these reports are really the bread and butter of the What Works Clearinghouse. There are always multiple topic area teams reviewing studies for intervention reports, both creating new reports and updating existing reports to reflect the most current research. The intervention reports are a cumulative summary of all of the high-quality research on an intervention. And I really mean all of it. Whether it's published or not, peer-reviewed or not, or well-known or little-known, it's all in there. Even the studies that are not effectiveness studies are included. They're not rated, but they're included, so it's clear that we didn't miss any of the possible studies out there that might have been conducted on this intervention. Many of the interventions covered in our intervention reports are branded curricula produced by developers. When we start reviewing the studies for information, the Clearinghouse will contact the developer and ask if they have any research on the intervention to make sure we have the comprehensive set of research on any given topic, It's a major undertaking that ultimately results in a summary report with usually fewer than 10 pages of main text. People are sometimes a little confused because an intervention report is one report, and a single study review is one report. But an intervention report has reviewed all of the studies on an intervention and summarized the information. And the single study review has reviewed only one study and presented a summary. So it's a big difference. Thank you. Um, Let's continue on
0: that thread. So single study reviews in depth on one particular study, intervention reports looking at numerous studies. Now let me ask you a little bit about practice guides. I see that also kind of used within NCEE. Can you talk a little bit about that? What types of questions do these practice guides tackle, how do these guides answer specific questions of practice, and also just to what extent do they offer evidence-based recommendations?
2: Practice guides summarize the evidence base and offer concrete suggestions for practitioners. We have close to 20 of these guides, and most of them focus on instructional topics. And they answer questions like, how do I teach fractions well? What can I do to reduce dropout in my high school? And how do I teach writing well? Practice guides are developed by a panel of about six to eight experts who are either researchers or practitioners, and they work together to identify recommendations as well as the extent to which those recommendations are backed by evidence. They're really our most popular product. They're downloaded an average of about 20,000 times per month. Wow.
1: So actually, what are the four obstacles to use of the work that you folks do, and what are you doing to make your evidence or the work that you produce more understandable More relevant, timely, and approachable.
2: Well, this really gets at knowledge utilization, which is why the Clearinghouse is well situated in the Knowledge Utilization Division of NCEE. It's a big and important topic because if nobody uses the information you have, then it's really not doing any good. Um, IES has two research and development centers also looking at knowledge utilization, so it's a question we're thinking a lot about. When we think about how people use the clearinghouse and why they might or might not use the information to inform decisions, I think about four obstacles. The first one's understanding, and by that I mean, is the information presented in a way that doesn't make anyone work too hard as a reader or a consumer of the information? Second, there's the issue of relevance, meaning, does this make sense for me in my context, and does the evidence add value to the decision that I need to make? Related to the issue of relevance is the obstacle of timing. So what I mean by that is, does the available information make sense for me right now? If I'm a decision maker, it's great that you have evidence about math curricula, but I need to improve adolescent literacy skills in my district, so the timing really matters. And finally, presentation. I care about evidence, maybe, but uh, my brain's kind of tired. So if you're going to give me information in a really dry way, that's going to be really hard to process. You get that glossy information from developers about their program and it makes it look so easy and convincing. The rigorous evidence should also be convincing and maybe even more so because it's independent and systematic nature of the work. So we try to address all of these in the What Works Clearinghouse. We try to group the information we have together by topics. You can address whatever topic you need with the evidence. So whatever topic you're addressing, you'll have information about that from the evidence. By providing a search tool, For comparing interventions, that's called find what works. By presenting information in a variety of formats and not just print, we do use videos, social media, news flashes, and do presentations at key conferences. And then we also work with intermediaries to help extend the work of the What Works Clearinghouse. The Clearinghouse has to set our boundaries and simply provide high-quality information in accessible ways because it's impossible to translate that information for every context that's out there. So intermediaries such as professional organizations, teacher and principal groups, the regional educational laboratories, and other federally and non-federally funded technical assistance centers really help to bridge the research into practice and support the use of evidence in education decision-making.
1: So, Joy, actually, as we were talking, I I wanted to ask this question. You may have touched on it, but I'd like to uh, ask it just in case you didn't, is if I'm a a practitioner, uh, the principal— uh, or what have you that you referred to earlier, does the What Works Clearinghouse or a Clearinghouse tell me which interventions are the most appropriate for my state or district? Does it help me with that?
2: So it does provide information for you to use as one piece of your decision-making. You can compare those interventions if you have a couple that you're looking at. Um, there, we do provide information about cost, information about support for implementation, but it's not going to tell you exactly what you should choose based on your context. You have all the information about the studies that have been conducted about those interventions, so you can see which ones match your context the most. In the Find What Works tool, you could uh, filter those, that information by grade, by demographics, by geography, to see if there's been a study that's been close, it, that is in a school district or state that's kind of like your own to see if that helps you make the decision. It's a tool and one piece of the decision-making process. It doesn't tell you which you should do, and it's also limited by the number of studies that already exist. So we don't do any, we don't evaluate programs, we don't conduct new research. The What Works Clearinghouse only studies the existing studies. So you have to take that as one piece of your decision-making factors when going ahead and making a decision for your context in your school or your district.
1: And just as a follow-on, because throughout the conversation, quality seems to be an underlying mission of the work that you do, finding quality. Why does quality matter in education research?
2: Yeah, well, I think quality matters in everything, right? Um, I think in this case, we're really talking about the quality of effectiveness studies. So effectiveness studies are really just a small piece of the pie. And the kind of research you design really should match the question that you have. If your question is, how did a program get implemented in a district, you're not going to do an effectiveness study, and it would not be appropriate to do so. You want to know more about how it was implemented along the way. So it's a different kind of design. So If we're trying to answer a question about what works and make this causal inference, we're talking about the quality of the effectiveness studies. And that's the kind of quality that we're talking about here. So you wouldn't want to make a decision based on faulty information. And if your groups were, if you have two groups, but one is already higher performing at the beginning and then they're higher performing at the end, It's not a good conclusion to say that the intervention caused that change. This is all about that causal inference. So that's what I mean when I talk about quality of effectiveness studies and just the small piece of the pie. We also think that other kinds of research are important for answering other kinds of questions. This is just the effectiveness studies for answering what works.
1: What does the future hold for the use of evidence-based evaluations within the NCEE? We will ask Joy Lesnick, Acting Commissioner of the National Center for Education Evaluation and Regional Assistance within the U.S. Department of Education, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. In a world inundated with all kinds of information, timely, relevant, and more predictive data can drive better decision-making. Law enforcement agencies are at the forefront in leveraging data and using innovative software to generate predictions that help police prevent crime. What is predictive policing? How can using analytics make us safer? Check out the IBM Center report, Predictive Policing, Preventing Crime with Data and Analytics by Jen Bochner, and find out. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. What do agency leaders need to know about the federal acquisition process? What are some of the key federal procurement trends? And how can agency leaders overcome today's acquisition challenges? Check out the new Center Report, A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition, by Trevor Brown and find out. The report offers practical recommendations for improving federal acquisition. Download your free copy of A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition at businessofgovernment.org and find out how the business of government is not business as usual. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Joy Lesnick, Acting Commissioner of the National Center for Education Evaluation and Regional Assistance within the U.S. Department of Education. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Kirsten Schroeder. So, Joy, I, I talked to many of my guests about the use of collaboration and partnerships among agencies and branches of government uh, and with the private sector to achieve mission results. How are you leveraging partnerships to improve management operations and your program outcomes?
2: Well, the What Works Clearinghouse standards themselves are the result of a collaboration and consensus of scholars, both inside and outside of government. Um, Since the What Works Clearinghouse was established, other clearinghouses at other agencies have been established, and many of them rely heavily on the Clearinghouse's standards as foundational for their own standards. So there are similar clearinghouses at the Department of Labor and the Department of Justice, for example. There are some key differences. And the Clearinghouse for Reviewing Studies in Education remains the biggest and most well-funded. But we participate in a cross-agency working group of federal clearinghouses to coordinate and also find that the ideas shared there help extend our work. Outside of government, contractors in the private sector are essential to the success of the Clearinghouse investment. That also includes university professors and students who are involved in the What Works Clearinghouse in a variety of ways. Great.
0: Looking forward now, looking into the future, what are you doing to continue the build of that strong foundation? Expand the topic areas, gain new audiences, maybe go in new directions you haven't, you know, you haven't been able to to contemplate at this point, but thinking about in the future.
2: Well, we started by expanding the size of the What Works Clearinghouse team at IES. For many years, there was one project officer and one contract. And now we have four project officers involved in different capacities and five active contracts doing the work of the clearinghouse. And I think this expansion provided the institutional capacity to sustain a complex investment, both in the field and at IES. Three years ago, we expanded to include post-secondary topics in our systematic reviews, and we continue to add more topics for review. We started off in topic areas that had the strongest evidence base, typically math and reading, but we have grown substantially since then. We also look at interventions designed specifically for groups of students, like students with disabilities or English learner students, for example. When the Department of Education included evidence as a requirement for discretionary grant competitions, including that as a goal, as we discussed at the beginning of our conversation, that also really strengthened the foundation and centrality of the What Works Clearinghouse as an anchor for collecting and summarizing high-quality evidence about the effectiveness of programs and interventions. And that seems poised to continue as a priority moving forward. I don't think we're trying to gain entirely new audiences, but rather to become more well-known among our key audiences across the country. And that key audience is decision-makers at all levels of the educational system. Researchers are also a key audience, and we hope to continue to engage more of them as well.
1: So the Clearinghouse, you guys are talking about it. Has there been discussion? Has other agencies or program owners come to you and say, hey, listen, can we take your template and export it into a different program area? And... What's the conversation like? Has it happened, A? Are you doing it, B? And what do you see for the future?
2: Sure. So the other, there are other federal agencies that have clearinghouses similar to the What Works Clearinghouse, and many of them use our standards as the foundation for their standards. And there's a lot of similarity across these clearinghouses and the standards that we use. There's also some slight variations due to the different topic areas, but there is actually a lot of coordination and similarity. We have a cross-agency working group. I think there's a lot of effort and interest interest in Coordinating them all together, I think that that is uh, um, challenging and maybe a long-term vision and goal. Um, But we have a new um, open data initiative where all of the information, um, so we create a lot of data when we review studies. It's basically like a gigantic Excel spreadsheet where reviewers put information from the studies into the Excel spreadsheet. And that becomes the data that we use about the sample size, about the effect sizes, all these different corrections, all the information about the study. And that information becomes our data. And so we are revamping our databases presently to make that information easy to export, to put into whatever other format, combine it with whatever other information, make whatever other report you would like to make from it. So all that information actually is available at exportable file um, currently on our, at our Find What Works tool right now at whatworks.ed.gov, and it will become even more searchable and even more amounts of data that you can manipulate on the website in the future. So we encourage it. We recognize our own limitations, but we encourage that other agencies, other organizations, other websites take that information and use it in a way that makes the most sense to them. Let me ask
0: a follow-on question. particularly when you think about the global economy, one thinks in terms of, you know, various educational entities around the world, methods, have you had any opportunities to look at kind of the way the What's Work Clearinghouse, how NCEE does its work vis-a-vis other, let's say, educational entities across the globe in other countries?
2: Sure. We have had some. There's a similar clearinghouse, I think, in the U.K. um, in education, in this country, this is the biggest and oldest clearinghouse of information like this uh, in in education or other fields. It really is the most well-funded. We've uh, had conversations with uh, USAID about creating one in their Latin American um, education program for reading in that context. And we've had conversations all along the way as other agencies have developed their clearinghouses. So I think there's a lot to learn from each other, and then there's also um, important variations from topic to topic. I think there are some places where they overlap, uh, but not very many. Education has some pretty set bounds Mm -hmm. as it relates to topic areas.
1: So, Joy, um, this has been a wonderful conversation. I'd like to get some advice from you. Uh, What advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service?
2: Well, I I feel really fortunate to get the do- to get to do the work that I really enjoy doing at the federal level because I think there's plenty of room for creativity and problem solving and a variety of work, along with producing work that can contribute to education improvement in, the con- in this country. I think things don't have to be done the way they've always been done, even if the procedures are entrenched in the bureaucracy. Government certainly has difficulty changing direction quickly, but even the small turns we make can have big ripples across the country. And this kind of change is more of an evolution rather than a revolution, which is a good thing in a democracy, by the way. But public service needs people who can lead that kind of change, who can work well in a team, who have a vision as well as the patience to operationalize what steps to take, and then the flexibility to go with whatever comes your way. It's a different responsibility and feeling than the private sector. Uh, That's not just because the budgets are a little tighter. Uh, Working in public service as an education researcher means less time to pursue your own research questions, but lots of opportunities to listen to practitioners and policymakers about their needs and then try to organize our processes and incentives to meet those needs. For example, we heard from people that better communication about how to use the What Works Clearinghouse resources was needed, So we worked on improving communication and explanation about those resources, about our reports, about our processes. We heard from some professors of teacher and principal training programs that they were using What Works Clearinghouse materials in their classrooms. So we developed a webinar to share that information more broadly. And we've heard through the questions to our help desk that there were misunderstandings about how the What Works Clearinghouse works, so we created a fact check quiz on our homepage to be more transparent about our processes in an engaging way. And then we heard the question, what does the What Works Clearinghouse do, and realized that all of our current materials and explanations weren't cutting it, so we created a series of infographics to try to explain our purpose and our processes more clearly. And so I really enjoy being in a position at NCE where we can be responsive to what policymakers and practitioners' needs are, and especially when our responses help support improvements. As the public's needs change, our responses will change. And I think that's a great opportunity and responsibility to be able to serve the public in this way.
1: Well, Joy, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks for taking time out of your busy day to be with us, but uh, I'd like to thank you. But more importantly, uh, Kirsten and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. It's
2: been a real pleasure. Thank you both.
1: This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Joy Lesnick, acting commissioner of the National Center for Education Evaluation and Regional Assistance within the U.S. Department of Education. My co-host from IBM has been Kirsten Schroeder. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, An in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.
0: This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.
2: From forging a unity of effort in homeland security to strategizing today how to field the U.S. Army of tomorrow to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in health care, and securing cyberspace, this issue of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics
0: and public management issues facing us today. Join Michael Keegan as he presents the leadership stories of a
2: select group of public servants and thought leaders merging real-world experience with practical leadership. Tune in Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.